If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Pete Wardgen, and this week I'm joined by the wonderful Amy Lunardi. Amy, welcome. G'day, Pete. How are you today? You're sounding you've still I'm... got a bit of a cold by the sound of it. That's been dragging uh, on for a while. Yeah, oh, it's it's a riveting conversation to discuss, you know, how sick you are and, <laughs> you know, the weather and everything. But I've been sick for a couple of months now. So it's been um it's been very uh, exhausting. <laughs> yeah, you've got a holiday coming up, so you must be due to uh, be on the men soon, hopefully. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> and Pete, I'm um, not sure about you up there in Queensland, but it has become quite a bit busier for me here in Melbourne with sentiment in the market picking up. And I'm obviously a very small boutique business, but it really does feel a lot busier than it did you know, even just a month or so ago with new inquiry coming in. So... I've got a lot to do at the moment. Yeah, I think um, quite a lot of people who were just uh, kicking their heels a little bit um, and sitting on the sidelines are now, uh, they're seeing more positive media headlines and they're certainly uh, springing into action a little bit more. I don't know that we're getting any more inquiry by volume, but things just happening a bit quicker, I guess. So uh, Yeah, yeah. Sometimes people who reached out, you know, three, four months ago, or even six or seven months ago, just bubbling back to the surface and, and saying, hey, I'm, I'm ready to go now. I'm feeling a lot better about everything. Amazing what a few media headlines can do. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Changing sentiment. So today, Amy and I are going to discuss some of our personal investing mistakes, what we did, what went badly, and the lessons we can take away from those mistakes. Because I guess at the end of the day, you learn more uh, from the mistakes that you make often from the things that actually work well. Uh, so overall, things have gone pretty well for us in property, but there's always things you can do better. So uh, lessons to be learned along the way. So let's run a few, uh, run through a few lessons together then, shall we, Amy? So um, why don't you first 
as a rundown. Why don't you tell us first um, the good? You know, what have you done well? Yeah, in yeah. Let's let's focus on the good first, and then we can yeah. <laughs> and then we can go into the negatives. So yeah, today we're discussing, um, I guess, a property investing mistakes, and then more general investing mistakes as well. And I know Pete, you have been an investor uh, for a very for not very long time. Sorry. For a while, for much longer than me, um, I wish I had been uh, investing for as long as you, and that's a mistake that I'll oh, like discuss in a moment. But to begin with, when I when I have approached investing, and and our portfolio is mostly property, um, we do have some other investments as well, but very highly focused towards property because that's what I feel comfortable with. That's what I'm an expert with. And what I what I think I have done well is every time I have purchased a property or an investment property, um, bar maybe one of them, I've been very clear with what I want and my strategy has been very clear. My property brief has been very clear. And for that reason, I've purchased quite quickly. And it's not to say that you have to buy a property fast, by all means, it's, it's not a race, but it does demonstrate that once you do have that strategy in place, then in theory, you should be able to get an outcome faster than if you were looking at all different types of things and not really quite sure what you're wanting and therefore maybe having a bit of self-doubt. It does help that I'm in the property industry and I've seen and con constantly see many, many properties. So I've got more context and exposure when I see a good property. Um, but having a really clear strategy for me has always has always rewarded me. So clarity is obviously on the plus side of the ledger. What about in terms of things like um, managing your budget and cash flows and things like that? Yeah, so, and that's that's probably a, uh, one of the second things that I think I've done well is always purchasing a property at that point in time in my life which aligned with my cash flows. So having a really good understanding of how much per month I was comfortable in contributing towards that property and factoring into those longer-term plans. So what I mean by that is my first two properties they were lower priced properties because at that point in time in my life, I wasn't on a high income. I couldn't contribute much extra. I didn't want it to impact my future plans. So slightly negatively geared. And then over time, as my income has grown, adding more of those stronger growth properties, more negatively geared options. So I, I think I've done that quite well over time. And lastly, as well, I have renovated two properties on when I especially when I look back at this on really good budgets so I've set a really tight budget for those renovations and I it was very involved in them and did a lot of work myself and project manage and for those reasons managed to renovate on a very tight budget so those are the three key things that I have well I think I've done well how about you Pete what have you done well well that that sounds pretty topical because at the moment obviously the cost of materials is really high the cost of trades is very high and I uh, being a Brit there used to be a lot of uh, property tv shows on in the United Kingdom and they do these um uh, Sarah Beanie was one of the shows and they'd say oh you know we're going to do this and and that to a house and every single time at the end of the uh, the episode, they'd be miles over budget. I they always say, you know, maybe, you know, allow for a 10% contingency, which yeah. makes sense. But I think if um, for a lot of um, people are doing uh, renovations for the first time or if they're an amateur developer, you should really allow for quite a significant contingency because the number of things that just come up 
that people don't expect. Um, it seems to catch them out all the time. So if you've done that well and stuck to budget, um, then uh, that's fantastic because uh, yeah, more often than not, I think people end up overrunning, especially at the moment when the cost of everything seems to have gone through the roof. Oh, uh, in the real estate definitely. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, it was um, pat, pat, patting my back here for myself, but I'm, I'm doing another renovation now and we're in a much more challenging environment uh, post-COVID with build costs. So it'll be an interesting outcome this time, I think. Yeah, and I guess it's one of the things that's put the home building industry under pressure. So many um, properties are built on fixed price contracts and now of course, the uh, price of everything shot up and it's, um, it's caused a number of insolvencies in the home building sector, which isn't helping. Um, so, yes, things I've done well, um, I think, in property, I think mainly uh, buying in good locations. So areas where I don't have to sell if I don't want to. Um, mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, I think there's different ways to go about property investment. But I think that's probably been the, the thing I've done best, really, is stick to uh, the sort of proven or tried and tested sorts of areas in the the big cities, close to transport hubs, good school zones, that kind of thing. I think from a portfolio point of view, um, I've over time at least managed to diversify pretty well, so into resi and commercial, um, and also in different states and different countries. So um, when I first um, started out in Australia, I was very focused on Sydney, uh, but over time I've managed to sort of spread the risk around a bit. So I think... Um, it gives me a bit more comfort these days because I'm not overexposed to any one particular market. But I think probably if I was to look at it overall, I think the thing I've done best of all is just sticking with it. I've never sold a property. Uh, always think about it, but um, mm -hmm. then I start thinking about the capital gains tax and the transaction <laughs> costs. And uh, yeah, in the end, I've just held on to everything, which over the long term has actually probably been the, the thing I've done best of all. So I think um, there's some useful lessons there in terms of, uh, sticking to sort of proven um, investment strategies and locations and sticking with it for the long run. Yeah, and that'll give you more flexibility in the future when you do get to the point in time where you say, okay, I've got it, now I'm I'm going to use those funds for something else, for lifestyle, for, for retirement, whatever that is, having them and holding on to them for the longer run will give you that flexibility. So that's, that's the idea. That's yeah, yeah so um, so that's enough for patting on the back because I guess the uh, <laughs> the subject today is uh, investing mistakes. So uh, yeah, always yeah. less pleasant to talk talk about and think about. But uh, let's let's run through a few of those. You can go first. You can have the pleasure. Okay. Well, to begin with, if I am reflecting on before I started before I started investing, so before I got into property and before I started any kind of investing. One of my regrets is, and I think a lot of people have this, is just not investing from a younger age or not saving for, from a younger age. And I was always of the mindset, especially because I was at uni for so long, that that's, a, that's an issue for future Amy to deal with. And I had this false confidence that, you know, I've got, I'm doing a double degree. Of course, I'll get a great job. Of course, I will earn lots of money in the future and I don't have to worry about it. But that's not a given. And what happened is I ended up working in an industry which wasn't a lot, wasn't anything to do with my degree. And I started off on 40 grand a year and it took a while to work up from there. So if I could reflect back, I wish I had just put a small portion of my income aside, taught myself a little bit about investing. Although 15 years ago, we didn't have podcasts and we didn't have 
great resources to learn about all of this. So I, I look back and I think it would have been a lot more challenging. But even things like I was given two grand of um, shares for my 18th birthday and then I sold those to, you know, while I was overseas and I ran out of money. And if I had just focused on that a little bit of more, it would have put me in a better position so that when I did purchase my first investment property, I could have bought something which was maybe a little bit better and then that would have rewarded me even more in the long term. So I think that that, that is one of my mistakes slash regrets in investing. I think it's a really tough balancing act because especially for those of us who go on to do higher education, um, there's potentially three or four years there where you're studying, you're not really bringing in much of an income. And then uh, I was talking to Chris on the podcast um, last week and he said, you know, he went overseas. He was only expecting it to be a one-year overseas trip. But before you know it, those can turn into, you know, sabbaticals or gap years. And um, it's pretty easy to let um, years slide by without making any progress. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's really the challenge is to, uh, to try and get, the snowball rolling as soon as possible while not uh, missing out on those experiences that all young people want to get as well. Oh, absolutely. Although if I look back at it, if I had put away 10 or 20% of my income at that time, it wouldn't really have affected me. And I think it's more getting into that long-term mindset of that money is non-negotiable, non-spending money and establishing those better money habits from being younger, not getting into debt, not having to buy that brand new car or not always just putting everything on my credit card. So instilling those um, more sustainable habits in the longer run. But yeah, you're right. It is a really tough, tough, tough balance. Pete, what was one of your mistakes in investing? I think if I went back to uh, the earlier days, um, I think because I started out investing in the stock market because my career was in uh, as a chartered accountant. Part of what I used to do is um, auditing listed company accounts and uh, and then later on I used to write listed company accounts, pretty boring stuff. But I, I think um, this is um, not really a property investing mistake per se. It's more of a, just a general investing mistake, but I think there's still some good lessons. I think if you went back to, particularly if you went back before the global financial crisis, there was an awful lot of people using uh, margin loans to invest in the stock market, which is basically using debt to buy shares. Um, which when the market's going up is fantastic because all of your gains are magnified. Um, and there was certainly a, a general sense of everybody's doing it. So um, you're kind of stupid not to. Uh, and of course, when you get a- Social proof, Pete. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So when you get a market downturn, particularly like we did in um, 2007, um, then yeah, I mean, you, you get the, uh, back in those days, you used to get a text message or- um, you know, sometimes an alert to saying you need to top up your, your margin loan account and or you have to sell some shares. And then the whole uh, framework for investing is very difficult because you've got challenging decisions to make. But I think the, the key lessons here are, well, firstly, be careful with the use of debt. Uh, but I think really the main thing here is just because everybody else is doing something doesn't mean it's necessarily a good idea. And quite often it's the opposite. Oh, absolutely. Incredibly risky situation. And, you know, it's something that you don't see a lot of people doing these days with margin loans and shares. Yes, interest rates are quite high as well. Like, it's not like um, when you borrow for a mortgage, you know, you might be borrowing at, you know, in the good times, maybe three or four percent at the moment, it might be five or six. But on a margin loan, you quite often pay more. 
Um, yeah, because and, the risk is so much higher. Yeah, and since uh, since that time, there's been a proliferation of other pro- um, uh, products like uh, CFDs and other ways to use leverage. Um, there's options and all sorts of ways you can gear up. So um, obviously, yes, always whenever you're using leverage, you've got to be very careful. Um, and Pete, if, you're, if, you're, if you had a margin call and you couldn't come up with those funds, what, what's the risk to you as an investor? Well, basically, um, the, the way that uh, margin loans work is you, you can only gear up to a certain level. Uh, so if you're investing in a blue chip share, for example, uh, you might get quite a high LVR. Um, if you're investing in more speculative stocks, you basically couldn't couldn't gear against those, uh, certainly back in the day. Bearing in mind, I haven't used the margin loan probably for uh, 14 or 15 years now, but um yeah, certainly back in those days, you basically had a choice. You either had to sell your shares or you had to make a top-up payment. Um, and what you very often uh, found is that the gains that you'd made in the preceding year could very quickly be wiped out because the leverage that you're using magnifies the returns on the way up, but then it gets magnifies you the losses. on the way back down. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, people were pyramiding margin loans on top of uh, collateral. It was uh, a bit of a... A powder keg situation and, and certainly if you look back at the stats all of the use of margin loans sort of crescendoed into 2007 and then fell away and it never recovered actually so uh, obviously quite a few people learned the same lesson yeah and in in property you, you leverage quite highly uh in the previously a lot of investors were leveraging 95 percent 100 percent 105 percent uh these days lvrs for investors especially after uh uh, the APRA regulations tightened have gone down quite a lot, but in comparison to other investments, still that the LVRs, and when we say LVRs, what we mean is loan-to-value ratios. So the amount that you could borrow as a loan in comparison to the value of that property is a lot higher in investing in property just because the risks are much lower. Yeah, difference. I think it's um, I think it's one of the things that makes property or real estate unique as an asset class is the way in which you can gear into it. Um, there's, there's three different things. Firstly, you can borrow relatively low interest rates, which you can't in most other asset classes. Secondly, very long loan terms, so 25 or 30 year loans. And also you don't get margin calls in residential property. So if the value of the property falls, well, as long as you're making the mortgage repayments, um, you don't get those margin calls. You don't get the text message saying top mm. up your account. Um, of course, though, whenever you're using debt, you need to take a long-term view in property and um, make sure you use it carefully. Don't borrow more than you can comfortably afford to repay. So definitely some key lessons there. So um, let's go on to another one, Amy, back over to you. Yeah, so I'm going to focus here more on an administrative type of mistake that I have made. And this is when it when it comes to my my business and my job and what I do, I am supremely organized. I am on top of everything. My paperwork is completely in order. And for that reason, sometimes my life administration isn't as organized. It's it's okay. But this mistake that I have made is just not being on top of my paperwork enough with some of my property investments and my property renovations. So for example, I, we currently have five properties. I help my mum manage her two investment properties. And for that reason, there's a lot of paperwork coming in and out. You know, there's there's property management things, there's insurances. And I realized at one point in time that one of our landlord insurance policies had lapsed and we didn't have landlord insurance for about a year on one of our properties. 
And I I just realized that I had to get into a bit more of a system where every year I was checking everything, filing everything correctly. I had a bit of a spreadsheet going on from there and then also doing insurance reviews too. So that's one of my tips. If you are thinking about getting into property and getting into investing, just at the very start, create some kind of system where you can keep on top of things and review and monitor. And further to that, I didn't keep all of my records and all of my receipts from the renovations that I have done. So what that means is that in the future, when I go and sell those properties, I'm not going to be able to claim deductions for that. I'm not going to be able to add those things onto my cost base and therefore um, pay less capital gains tax. So that is something which I, yeah, I regret doing. That was a bit of a mistake and a lesson learned moving forward. I remember when I was working in my professional career, I remember as I started to build my property portfolio, I had a couple of people say to me, oh, look, I couldn't be doing with all the admin. You know, it's too much, (laughs) too much hard work. And yet the same people would be working 60, 70 hours a week. And I think the thing to remember with property, yes, you do need to be organized. But if you've got a a property manager and you've got your admin, um, you've got your files set up, it needn't really take you that much time in an average week. It shouldn't. It shouldn't really, although you can't rely on the property manager to do all of that for you. And in this case, I think a credit card had expired, that that policy was coming to, um, no one got alerted essentially to that. And therefore, you also need to avoid being complacent in just avoiding the, uh, in just assuming that your property manager is going to do everything as well. But yeah, you're right. It, it shouldn't, in theory, be that much effort if you just set it up all correctly at the start and just have a little, a few processes in place. That's all. One of the arguments here against property investment is that the assets can end up owning you rather than the other way around. But I think, as you pointed out there, the key to offsetting that is just being well organised. I think. Uh, if you if you try to be a bit proactive instead of reactive, then you can see off some of those problems before they arise. I think uh, well organized uh, filing and uh, just keeping an eye on everything is is definitely the way to offset that that risk, I suppose. Um, so let me cover off another one of my mistakes, Amia. But I think I'll do one more in the stock market before I come on to the property stuff. I think the other um, thing that I did wrong in stocks, uh, in fact, not I think I know, uh, was getting involved in the more speculative end of town. I think to some degree, when you're younger, you can afford to take some risks. And, um, you know, sometimes it's borderline gambling instead of investing. I think um, because I worked in the mining sector, there was an awful lot of people, um, the executives, people who worked in the industry were punting on the the penny stocks uh, back at the sort of the, the lower end of town. Of course, in Australia, when the mining boom peaked, a lot of those uh, valuations uh, went south pretty quickly. I think the the lesson here is really to work out, are you actually investing or are you trading or or actually just punting? Um, And Pete, can you describe what penny stocks mean, what what they are? Yeah, so um, I guess uh, it's a phrase that's probably gone out of fashion a little bit, but back in the day, it's really referring to stocks and shares that would trade uh, maybe just for a few cents. So... um, in Australia, we get a lot of companies that are set up to explore uh, for mining assets. So they'll do some drilling in Western Australia or other parts of the country, you know, looking for Lassiter's Reef or the next big deposit. So quite often those companies, they're not really making a profit. Um, they're pretty early on in their journey. Uh, the valuations will be very small. And what people are hoping to do by investing in the penny stocks is uh, maybe 
uh, buy some shares in a company for five or ten cents and hope that one day it goes to two dollars if they make a big um, discovery. Uh, so resources is quite a big part of the Australian uh, stock exchange. Um, and I think the, the lesson here is really, uh, I mean, these days it's very easy as an investor if you want to invest um, in something that you can potentially hold forever because you can buy an index fund or an ETF that owns a broad basket of stocks. But if you're investing in those um, types of companies, you really, it's a timing thing. You're just trying to get the timing right, get in and out, make a quick profit. Uh, we see this in property as well. Um, quite often when people are trying to flip property uh, for a quick profit or invest in a, a regional hotspot like a mining town, that's all about getting the timing right. Uh, whereas um, I think what I learned really from that episode is, uh, for me anyway, was to try and invest in things that if I don't want to sell, I never have to. So uh, ETFs, index funds, uh, capital city uh, properties that are uh, good locations. And, and that's really what's worked for me best. Um, so again, um, a little bit uh, like the first point, it's really a risk management thing, but speculative in investments, yes, there might be a place for them with a small part of your portfolio. But for most people, you really want to be a long-term investor in quality assets if you can. Yeah. Oh gosh, absolutely. And it kind of leads into my next mistake in <laughs> in that one of my one of the strategies which I probably didn't get quite right with my in property investing is when it came time to buy our fourth property, we were at the point in time where we thought we could either have this as a pure investment or we were half thinking maybe this is a property which we could potentially move into at some point down the track. And when I am approaching investing, I am absolutely trying to always recommend either you you do one or the other, ideally. And if there's a bit of a crossover and that achieves that purpose for you, that's a bonus, but it shouldn't be the overall goal. But this was something that we were we were sort of toying around in the background. But the issue was, is that we were so far away from moving into that property. Um, we were planning for a future that didn't yet exist. And so much can happen over time. And we bought this property back in 2016 thinking maybe by the time we have a family, we'll move into it in four or five years. But then COVID happened and I started my own business and all of that got pushed out. And it's coming eight years down the track and we still haven't yet moved into it. And our life has changed so much in the meantime. So one reflection, and it has actually, it has worked out for us in the end because we are going to move into it. But it has also cost us a lot in the meantime to hold on to that property. Perhaps we could have invested in a pure investment property, which would have performed better over the longer term, given us more flexibility and choice right now. So if you are overlaying the idea of moving into a property at some point in time, just understand that planning for five plus years ahead can be really, really challenging and just think about how that could impact your investment decisions and decide if that's worthwhile or not. So, and also ideally, if you can approach investing as either this is an investment property or this is a home. And then again, if you can make that crossover in any way, that's a bonus, but you need to go into that understanding that there are drawbacks with that strategy. So a lot can change in five years. Uh, life can get in the way sometimes. And that's really a planning point. Um, and that actually yeah, segues quite nicely into the, my next uh, mistake, which was really a due diligence mistake. Um, 
but we were buying a place. I can't remember the year. I think it was around 2008 in the uh, the panic of 2008, 2009. We we're buying a place to live in um, Bondi in Sydney, and we found a place. We really wanted to to buy this place to live in it. Um, it was just a, a unit, and um, we got a solicitor to review all the documentation. And then after we bought the property, uh, we got a special levy, uh, and uh, you know we had to top up the sinking fund. Uh, now, you know, of course, we went back to the solicitor and said, "Well, hang on, you know, you've reviewed all the documents, didn't give us any pointers here. You know, what's the value in paying a solicitor to read all the documents if they're not going to highlight it?" And they said, "Well." Uh, suck it up, basically. Uh, so I think the, the key lessons here are uh, really there's two. I think get a specialist strata report. They cost, um, depends on where you are in the country, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, maybe a bit more. Uh, but actually take the, the time to read it yourself if you can, rather than just relying on somebody else. Because in the end, it's uh, you that's going to have to um, own the property. And if there is a an issue um, that comes up down the track. Now, in this case, um, I think the levy was a couple of thousand dollars. It was annoying rather than catastrophic, but it did make me realise, you know, that actually um, if there's a really significant issue, you need to be across these things. So that's really a due diligence point when you're buying uh, something that's on a strata scheme like a, a unit or a townhouse. Yeah, and in that situation, so in New South Wales, you can engage people to do, uh, people who are strata searches professionals to do all of this for you as well but of course you should read the documents yourself you know you know you don't necessarily have legal qualifications but you can read through these some of these things and say well what about this what about this here in victoria you do receive owners corporation minutes and the certificate in the section 32 but we always also call the owners corporation and if they're not happy to speak to us because sometimes they aren't we get our questions answered via the real estate agent and then we get them to get those questions from the OC in writing. We don't take the real estate agent's word uh, by all means. But that's because sometimes minutes and these strata reports don't capture absolutely everything. So part of the questions that we ask is, are there any special levies which may potentially come up in the future? And sometimes through those conversations, that owner's corporation manager will say to us, well, yes, there was actually a discussion around painting that entire block a couple of years ago. And that's something that will potentially happen in the future. And it's not guaranteed. So you can approach that purchase knowing that that may be a cost and just not be surprised in the future if that happens. So always doing some extra due diligence and that segues perfectly, Pete, into my <laughs> my next mistake as well, which is just being aware that when you engage professionals, of course, you are trusting and hoping that they are going to be doing their job properly. But like in your example, Pete, your solicitor who reviewed that contract didn't necessarily do their job properly. And I have had situations in the past as well, which have been similar. And one, one example is I've had a couple of issues with property managers over the years. I've had some fantastic ones, but because in property manager, there's a bit of turnover. Sometimes I've had some not so good ones. And I have had issues where I've had vacancies for longer than I should have because that property manager was not doing enough inspections. They weren't dropping the rent when they should have. They weren't being proactive. And then I'd have to come in at the last moment and essentially fix things. 
say, let's do a, another market analysis. Let's drop the rent. And we got a tenant in straight away um, or other situations where they haven't done paperwork correctly. And I've had to come in and fix those things. So just not assuming that other people are always doing their job. And then also relying on professionals when I've done our property development. Oh my gosh, so many, so many lessons learned there where I engaged a lawyer to do a certain thing and I just wasn't hearing from them. I was getting no updates and I ultimately had to step in and take over that role as well. And with counsel, assuming that counsel are, you know, they say they'll get something back to you in a certain period of time and they don't. And then me having to proactively fix those things. And now when I'm approaching any kind of uh, working with professionals, I'm always going into it with the mindset of, yes, I'm engaging them. They are professionals, but I'm going to be monitoring this and I'm going to be touching base and thoroughly reading everything and checking things and politely nagging them as well if things aren't happening as quickly as they should be. So just understanding that you need to be approaching all of this, whether you're investing or just buying a property or doing a renovation, you're in the driver's seat and the ultimate responsibility and risk falls on you. And approaching it with that mindset is that fair enough, Pete? I think it is. Yeah, you've you've summarised it perfectly. I've got nothing nothing to add there. Uh, yeah, very carefully chosen uh, phrases as well. There, so well, uh, yeah. So so um, I think um, well, I've got two more on my list. I think uh, one of them is kind of a, a crossover, really, uh, between uh, the body corporate theme and also what you were talking about before about you know, are you buying an investment? Or somewhere to live. So um, when we uh, traded up uh, from Bondi, we wanted to move to a place uh, closer to the city on the harbour, and we bought a um, a unit there, just a two bed two bath place with parking. Um, but the place had um, this place we were moving into had a gym, um, had a pool, uh, had a concierge. Now we were training to do the marathon at the time, so the, the idea of having a pool and a gym was fantastic. Um, anyway, later on, um, uh, like all of our properties, we've always held on to them and it became a rental property. But then, of course, if you're going to own a property for the long term and you're paying for a gym and a pool and a concierge, very often people don't use these facilities and they can be pretty expensive on an ongoing basis uh, to pay for. And actually, I think even sometimes a high strata fee can impact the resale value of your property because the next person doesn't necessarily want to pay uh, high quarterly fees. Uh, and that could impact or stunt the capital growth. So um, again, it's not necessarily a catastrophic mistake, but it's, it's sometimes just it's an annoying ongoing cost. And I think um, if you were buying a pure investment property, especially if it was on a body corporate or a strata scheme, you'd probably try and look at something where the fees were pretty uh, modest or reasonable instead of paying for expensive facilities that people don't always use. That's right. And strata fees can change over time too. And the older a property gets, the more expensive they can become. So just because you're paying you know, five grand or whatever it is today, doesn't mean that will be the case in the future. Depending on the size of the block that you purchase in, that property might have, that owner's corporation or body corporate might have a long-term maintenance plan. So in theory, your money is being put aside every year to save up for things in the future. But properties can deteriorate faster than you expect. Things can break down faster than that maintenance plan suggests. So absolutely. Or well, sometimes it can... even with new properties, I think there was a, 
a case of a, a new tower block on uh, Queen Street in Brisbane where the strata fees were set initially, but then after a year or so, uh, the strata fees had to go up because the costs were higher than expected. Sometimes you get these teething problems with new properties and you can get some unexpected uh, nasty surprises there. So uh, it's one of the reasons I prefer not to buy brand new if I can avoid it because uh, yeah. who knows what might be coming. So back to you, Amy. Okay, well, my my last mistake is not purchasing properties when I knew it was a good time to buy. And what I mean by that is over the last 10 years, I've been in many markets where the, it's been a buyer's market. So for whatever reason, pr- prices have come down. There's not a lot happening. But these have these have, this has usually been caused by some macroeconomic shock, which is impacting everyone. You know, COVID um, back in early 2019, late 2018, just before the election, where we were all worried that negative gearing was going to get scrapped. So, and and more recently, late last year, when interest rates were high and we didn't know when that end was in sight. And in all of those periods of time, you know, as a buyer's agent, I was seeing properties sell for what I knew was you know, really good opportunities. And if I look back over over the years, just if I had had more confidence to to jump in at that point of time, they w- it would have been challenging for me because it wouldn't necessarily have been times when I was actively planning to purchase. So it would have been a little bit more speculative. Um, but if I had done that, then those properties on reflection, what I see that I could have bought them for and what they're worth now, I didn't wouldn't necessarily have had to keep them forever. I could have then unsold them, or you know, I'm not talking about flipping, getting in and getting out. Um, but that's just the power of hindsight, isn't it, Pete? We all look back and we see opportunities that we could have taken. Very few people like to catch a falling knife in property. I think it's it's easy to say, but actually, when it comes down to it, most people it goes back to the social proof point you were making before. People actually feel more comfortable buying in a booming market because mm-hmm. everybody else is doing the same. But actually, I'm sure, um, looking back on my journey, the best um, results have usually come uh, from buying when everyone else was panicking. You know, t- 2008, nine in Sydney was a good time. People were practically giving properties away at times or desperate to sell at any rate. Um, yeah. Also, I think um, you know there's some good opportunities if you want to be counter-cyclical like Geelong in 2014 when everyone was saying, oh, the closure of the car industry is the end of Geelong. And if you look at the results over the next decade, they were really good. Um, I think um, in Brisbane five or six years ago, you could pick up apartments very, very cheap because it's kind of ground zero for the oversupply of property, but now we're in a shortage. You know, um, Oh, absolutely. Again, and looking at Geelong as well, we started investing for our clients in Geelong about at that time, sort of 2015, 2016, and those clients had exceptional growth. And again, that's one of my mistakes looking back then. And I had the confidence to help my my clients buy there, but I should have I should have bought there as well. But it, it does need to fit into your own personal strategy. You shouldn't just go out and buy a property because it's a buyer's market or um, just for the sake of it. It does need to fit into your cash flows and, and your longer term plans. But Pete, just to 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 draw this whole episode back to to the very end. You've got um, one final mistake here, which is to do with with tenants. Yes, I think, um, again, this is where, uh, you you know, be easy to sort of blame a property manager and say, well, you should have and we should have. 
Uh, but yes, we, we had uh, most often we try to buy in blue chip areas. So we haven't, you know, we've uh, overall we've had brilliant tenants and um, very few issues. Uh, but we had one in, um, instance when the rental market was pretty soft and we got an application uh, where the applicants actually offered more than the asking price uh, for the property. But it was two couples who applied instead of, you know, normally we'd, you know, you get an application from uh, a professional couple, a young family, but we had two couples who applied together. Two of them from were from overseas and we didn't have reference checks, uh, but they assured us, you know, it would all be fine. And I think, you know, we were thinking, well, you know, someone wants to pay more than the asking rent and uh, this has got to be a good thing. Um, uh, in uh, in mm -hmm. hindsight, not so much. I mean, they had parties, they had the police called out, there was noise complaints, uh, there was smashed glass on the balcony. I think at one stage they were subletting the apartment out to friends on holiday from overseas. It, I mean, it was an absolute disaster from start to finish. And in the end, we actually had to ask them to leave the property. So in every sense, uh, the extra rent wasn't worth it. So again, oh, sometimes these things are they're more obvious in hindsight. You know, this, at the outset, it all sounds very credible. You know, what could possibly go wrong? But um, yeah, I think if you, I mean, it's a due diligence point, really. If you can get reference checks um, and you, you often find, um, you know, we've had people who uh, rent from the armed forces, for example, or in the Navy and you usually find people with professional careers are far less likely to be troublesome in that in that sort of a way anyway. When we're approaching, when I'm helping clients purchase investment properties, we're all doing a very, very thorough analysis to understand what that property is worth. And sometimes I have had investors say, well, let's just try for more. Let's just try for an extra $40, $50 a week. When tenants are, they are quite price sensitive. And sometimes if you do price that property too high or you're, you have an application come through, which is far above market value, it's for a reason. Mm. And potentially it's because those applicants haven't been able to get a rental anywhere else. And they're having to put more money down for that reason. I'm not saying that's across the board, but I've had a few situations where some of my clients have done that against my advice and they've ended up having issues like you've had, Pete, or they've had lease breaks because that tenant couldn't actually afford it over time. And yeah, it's certainly, it sounds good in theory, having that a little bit of extra cash flow, but not necessarily always worth that risk. I needed you on my shoulder, Amy, to tell me that <laughs> at the time, because it was a lesson learned the hard way. It wasn't a good experience for anybody. No, I can the imagine. Process, not for the property manager. Uh, the uh, the building manager was uh, tearing his hair out and it wasn't good for us or the tenants. So, um, well, I think we've covered off a fair few things there. So some uh, key themes, I guess, um, careful management of debt, good planning, um, definitely uh, very thorough due diligence when you buy a property, same when you're um, engaging professionals, uh, whether that's um, solicitors or property managers, choosing your tenants. Um, what else have I missed, David? There's a fair few good points in there. Oh yeah. Well, look, it all it all really just comes down to you're you're the you're the driver here of your own journey. You need to take responsibility. And mistakes do happen over time, but the more effort and time you can put into the research at the very beginning, the better. And these days, there's not really an excuse to not do your research because we have all of these amazing resources. We've got podcasts and we've got online courses and so much information out there. And then, you know, adding in professionals to your sphere to support all of that. Um, but yeah, always just coming back to make sure that you're doing your own, your own thorough research and due diligence first. 
That's a very good point. Um, the journey won't be um, completely smooth. There's always ups and downs and things can always go wrong. But generally speaking, property can be quite a forgiving asset class over the long run, uh, provided you do the necessary uh, due diligence along the way. So uh, thank you so much, uh, Amy, for joining today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Now, if you do have any questions on anything we've talked about today or if you want to get in touch, um, do check out the show notes and feel free to drop us a line. Uh, leave us any feedback and we're always keen to answer your questions so uh, thanks Amy and thanks everyone again thanks Pete thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast if you love the show why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify and if you want to work with me Amy, Pete or Chris you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS Podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.